0: Let's pray. Holy God, have mercy on all of us who have clean hands but dirty hearts this morning. I come to this pulpit with no illusion that I've got it all figured out, but as someone who desperately needs your grace this morning. I ask that you be at work in each of us through the words of Jesus. May these thoughts and the meditations of all of our minds convict us, challenge us, comfort us, and conform us more and more into the image of Christ. Open our ears to the truth that you have for us in this space and time together. Amen. We're finally approaching the end of cold and flu season so I feel like I can finally say this. Church is a weird place if you're at all concerned about germs. (laughs) There's a lot of hugging people you know, shaking hands with people you don't, kids running around wiping their cookie crumbs and snot all over the place, and there's a monthly sharing of a communal loaf of bread and a single cup of wine or grape juice. In my time as a hospital chaplain, there were clear instructions for interacting with our patients. Before entering each room, you either wash your hands or use Purell. And after leaving again, it was recommended that you once again wash or sanitize. I would come home from my shifts with red and cracked hands. But it often felt like a small sacrifice to make for keeping people, including myself, safe. You can't exactly do the same in a church, unless you want to use Purell between each hug and handshake, which would make passing the piece a rather lengthy activity. When I first read our gospel text for today, it was still the height of cold and flu season, and many of you were hacking up lungs and calling in sick. And I admit that this influenced the way that I understood this passage. From a first glance, it seems understandable that a group of people in the ancient world, a community of people without running water or emergency rooms or vaccines, would be concerned about hygiene. If you don't have board-certified doctors or a pharmacy on your block or indoor plumbing, getting sick is a pretty big deal. At the beginning of this section of Mark, The Gospel writer gives us a little background information. The Pharisees and other religious leaders had come to Jerusalem, and there they engaged with Jesus and his followers. Mark tells us that the ceremonial washing of hands was a cornerstone of Jewish practice, that the cleaning of hands and washing of cups and pitchers and kettles was a tradition that was observed by the entire community like using Purell before going into patients' rooms. It was something that you did to keep yourself and others safe. Doesn't it make sense to you to at least rinse off before plunging your hands into communal serving plates? Doesn't it seem like a good idea to wash after coming home from the market, after touching the dead fish that you bought for dinner? or the wood that you purchased to make your evening fire? Would you be willing to eat with someone whose hands were covered in dirt? Would you share a plate with someone who had just used their fingers to tie up their camel after riding through crowded and dusty streets? Hand washing was an important part of ancient hygiene, but the Pharisees' compulsion towards its ceremonial use and the obsession with being clean was about more than just germs. Over the course of generations, hand washing became less about being physically clean and more about being culturally clean. It became a tradition, not just a practice. It was no longer just expected. It became enforced not engaging in these cleanliness codes was more than a social faux pas. It eventually became an indictment of someone's character, What something that people would say about their lack of devotion. But the real question this morning, just one of many that I'm about to get started with, is what were the Pharisees and larger community really devoted to? In verse 5, the Pharisees ask Jesus why his disciples eat with defiled hands. That is, why they join a communal table without engaging in that community's tradition of washing before eating. Couched inside their question is judgment of anyone who does not follow the tradition of their elders. Inside their question is a condemnation of Jesus They ask, Jesus, how can you associate yourself with someone so at odds with our practices? How can you be a religious leader if your followers refuse to participate in our rituals? Why do you allow yourself to be surrounded by physically and spiritually unclean humans? In verse 6, you may have heard that Jesus responds by quoting the prophet Isaiah. He says, "These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have to let go of or you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human tradition." Now, I find it fascinating from a biblical studies point of view that Jesus uses the words of the prophet Isaiah to challenge the religious leaders of his day. That may not seem like a big deal to you, but it is a big deal to me. The Pharisees, known for their love and devotion to scripture, would certainly have been familiar with the prophet's texts, as well as Isaiah's condemnation of the religious leaders of his own day. Second Temple Judaism, that is, the time between the rebuilding of the temple during the 4th and 3rd centuries BCE and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 CE, was a time in which many of the writings of the prophets were copied and memorized, studied, and canonized. During Jesus' time, rabbis and scribes would have finally put together what we now call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Tanakh the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, that is, the law, the prophets, and the wisdom writings. The Pharisees were avid readers of the text, but they were also followers of another set of laws, sometimes called the oral tradition. So I ask myself, why do the words of Isaiah seem to be in opposition to to the traditions of the elders built up by this oral law. At this point, my overactive imagination interrupts all logical thought for a brief musical interlude. I imagine Jesus as Tevye, as the first few bars of tradition play in the opening scene of Fiddler on the Roof. Jesus walks around the village, pointing out all of the men and women going about their daily tasks their roles and place in the community determined by various rituals and rules. He comes to a table where people are getting ready to eat, and he shakes his head. Instead of Tevya's enthusiasm for the tradition that seemingly keeps his town together, I hear something different in Jesus' voice, something that sounds like disappointment or maybe disgust or maybe grief. Tevya sings to us that tradition is comforting. It creates stability and certainty. And it gives us a sense of safety in our ever-changing world. We need that sometimes. Tevya would remind us that tradition, when done well, can remind us of who we are and where we come from. In the right dosage, Tradition can ground us in something bigger and greater than ourselves. When done right, tradition can point us towards purpose and mission. So I ask myself again, why does Jesus seem so opposed to the traditions of his elders? In verse 9, Jesus gives his audience an example of what faith looks like when tradition is allowed to overshadow what it's supposed to point to. Jesus speaks to the reality of what happens when tradition isn't just a way of doing things, but becomes the only way of doing things. Jesus tells us that tradition used incorrectly points inward instead of reaching outward. Tradition that becomes purpose and mission instead of pointing to it ends up perverting the truth instead of proclaiming it. Jesus says that when tradition goes unchecked, it nullifies the word of God. It nullifies God's word to us. So Jesus looks at the Pharisees' clean hands but, but, but tells them but, that beneath their empty ritual they are hiding dirty hearts. That even though their hands may be freshly washed, their souls are caked in the dirt of empty words and vain worship. They know the words of Isaiah But their oral law creates justifications for disobeying the prophet's directives. These are harsh words, to be sure. When I held the mirror of this text up to myself, I didn't like what I saw. I wonder what Jesus sees when he looks at me and my hands and my heart. Does he see that despite my vocation and my title, my heart still holds on to the traditions that have shaped and guided me, sometimes over and above what I know I'm called to do? Does Jesus know that even though I am at church every Sunday, my soul sometimes feels far away? Does Jesus wish that I was more inspired by the dreams of my future descendants than the rituals of my elders. I've been wrestling with these questions for a couple weeks now, ever since I was affirmed for ordination by our denomination. This body is the church of my ancestors, the community of my childhood the university of my young adulthood, the workplaces of my career, my family, my lifelong friends, the traditions of my great grandparents passed down from generation to generation, the institution that discipled me, affirmed me, called me, the people that I serve and serve alongside. I've told some of you that this process has created a very mixed set of emotions for me. There's the usual pride and happiness and some relief, but there's also confusion and anguish and discomfort. I've struggled to articulate why this feels like both a culmination of everything I've worked for and a dark cloud hanging over my head. During the dark nights of my soul, I've wondered if my allegiance to this denomination has in some way nullified the call that God has placed on my life if my belief in the traditions of my elders has kept my hands clean, but my heart dirty. In verse 14, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside of a person can defile by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Jesus spent almost all of his ministry in the company of people who would have been labeled unclean or unworthy. He ate with tax collectors and prostitutes. He touched lepers. He had his feet washed by a woman and her hair. His ministry wasn't sanitized or sterile. And embraced the mess and muck of ordinary people, people who needed his grace and his love and his mercy and his care. And I realized this week that I wanted my ministry to follow his example. I wanted our ministry to follow his example. It is what comes out of our hearts out of our physical bodies, out of our communities, out of our institutions that either defiles us or marks us as clean. I realized this week that we cannot claim to be producing good fruit if the fruit is freshly washed on the outside but rotting on the inside. I'll tell you that I hesitated to share my wrestling with you. One, because I don't like to admit that I don't have it all together. And two, because God has laid on my heart some things that I don't want to hear, and some things that I don't think you want to hear either. So we all might be going home a little uncomfortable today. If you'd like to wrestle with these things with me, Please come talk to me after the service, or send me an email, even if it's hate mail. Or let's schedule a time to have coffee and chat. It would be nice to have some company as I try and possibly fail to figure all of this out. When I asked God what it would look like to make my heart clean, God said that it might take getting my hands dirty. When I asked what it would look like to get my hands dirty, God answered that it would require sacrifice, but not an animal sacrifice, a whole other kind. Perhaps giving up my desire to be liked, maybe letting go of how I thought my life should go, maybe giving me a new vision for how I move forward. A clean heart means repenting of the sins that lurk in my life and the injustice that I am complicit in or choose to ignore. A clean heart means a community that acknowledges their blind spots so that they can more clearly see what God might be calling them to. The hard truth that I've come up with this week is this, my friends. Rejecting commandments in order to keep the peace may be clean, but it isn't righteous. Neglecting mission and purpose in favor of keeping our heads down may help us feel safe, but it will never make us holy. Waiting to see how the wind blows may keep us protected, but it will rot me and us from the inside out. I won't pretend to know or understand what these words might mean for you or your journey this week. We are in so many different places and come from so many different experiences. I would love to know how you are processing the transitions in our congregation, our denomination, and our world. It's a lot to be overwhelmed with. I would be glad to listen to the ways that God is speaking to you as you wrestle with what we have been called towards. I also know that there is so much work to be done in this world, so much healing to bring, so much good news to share. So many bonds to break, so many chains to loosen, so many people to be set free that I can't keep standing at the sink, and I hope you won't either. There are people waiting out there to hear that they are not unclean, that they are not unwanted, that they are not unworthy. There are people in our lives who need to be told that no matter what has happened to them, they have not been defiled, that they can be whole. There are neighbors on our street who live in high rises and who sleep on our doorsteps that need us to reach out and be willing to join in their mess and their muck. There are friends and colleagues and classmates that need to see that Christianity isn't a dead tradition, but a living body of imperfect but faithful followers of Jesus. I've learned this week that there is much freedom and joy to be found in having clean hearts but dirty hands. And I want that for all of us. I want that for me. I want that for this congregation, and for this city, for this country, this denomination. I want that for this season, and for the next season, and for generations after that. I want it for our people here in the pews, And I want it for our people who are yet to walk through our doors. So don't be afraid of a little dirt, Jesus says. Let's roll up our sleeves and dig in. Amen.